everyone, and welcome to another episode of At War, a podcast by the CLC. Thank you to everyone for tuning in to our last episode on Biden's foreign policy. Today, we're going to be talking about the Afghan peace process, and our guest is Fahad Hamaim. Fahad is a fifth-year PhD candidate in political science at Yale University, where his research centers on questions of democratic institutionalization and state behavior. In addition to writing regularly for the News International, his commentary on Pakistan and the region has appeared in Foreign Policy, Al Jazeera, Arab News, The Wire, and Dawn. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off uh, by asking you to give us like a little brief rejoinder for our viewers. Um, as someone who's been so consistently familiar with the region, um, can you give us the briefest background to the peace agreement that was signed between the US and the Taliban in February 2020 and the increasing tensions that have coincided with the arrival of the Biden administration? Sure. Um, I So just in terms of how you framed that, um, the... Uh, deal that was struck between the United States and the Taliban back in February 2020 um, was the result of a belated realization on the part of the Americans that um, there had to be some sort of political negotiation to end this long conflict. Um, This has officially become America's longest war um, in terms of uh, how long it's lasted for. It's exceeded uh, America's involvement in Vietnam. Um, It's cost the United States more than um, the Marshall Plan that was uh, put in place after uh, the Second World War. Um, And uh, when I say this was there was this belated realization that uh, the Taliban couldn't be defeated militarily. Mm -hmm. um, This realization came on the heels of several attempts by different presidents um, uh, to try and um, in some ways... um, stem the bleed in Afghanistan. Um, So uh, famously in 2009, President Obama attempted a surge uh, where an additional 33,000 troops were deployed in Afghanistan to try and defeat the Taliban. Um, There were several flaws with the Obama uh, administration's counterterrorism approach towards the region. Um, One of them was that it sort of overlooked the dysfunction uh, of of the the Afghan administration and the fact that this was an administration that wasn't viewed as credible or legit- legitimate uh, within Afghanistan. Um, I think another problem was the fact that when they uh, surged troops on the ground, uh, they also announced very fixed timelines for when these troops would withdraw. Um, so in some ways, it was just a matter, uh, it was just for the Taliban to sort of bide their time. Um, Throughout this sort of, you know, period that we're, 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 we're discussing, um, Pakistan maintained Pakistan maintained that there could be no sort of uh, military solution mm. uh, to the Afghan problem yeah. and there had to be a political settlement. Um, and so it was a combination of, I think, Pakistan sort of constantly trying to convey this message that, you know, the Taliban need to be negotiated with their political reality, um, that uh, when the Trump administration came in, um, it was it was during the Trump presidency that uh, Zalmay Khalilzad was appointed as the special envoy to the region. Um, and these efforts then began to try and bring the Taliban to the negotiating table. So in, in 2018, that's when um, the United States and the Taliban actually began high-level um, direct face-to-face negotiations. Um, it was, uh, you know, it, it, so when we're... Talking about the deal that was struck in 2020, it's important to sort of have this context in mind that initially the United States was very reluctant, dragging its feet, Mm -hmm. um, you know, played a spoiler on many occasions in in, at various points in which a peace might have been achievable had it um, not sort of adopted this dual fight talk strategy beforehand. Um, And it's also worth, worth mentioning that I think after 2018, you also saw a considerable effort by Pakistan um, to try and make peace happen. Um, so I think, you know, just, just to give you an example, every time Zalmay Khalilzad came to the region, um, he would there was at least one visit to Islamabad. Mm. Um, so it, it's clear that Pakistan was doing a lot to try and right. facilitate and make this happen. 
Pakistan also in 2018 released uh, Mullah Ghani Brother, who was who has now become one of the chief Taliban interlocutors, mm-hmm. who's negotiating with the Afghan government in Doha. Um, so, uh, just to put that sort of perspective there. Um, since then, uh, the, the the deal that was signed in in February was meant to be the first of a two part deal with the Taliban. So the first part was that the United States sort of uh, signs a deal, gets the Taliban to agree to talk to the Afghan government, um, and in doing so, what the United States sort of stipulated uh, was that they would leave Afghanistan by the first of May 2021, which is um, a month in, in a month and a half's time. Um, since then, though, uh, things have sort of been at an impasse um, and there's there are issues, there are roadblocks that are sort of cropping up in the conversation that's taking place between uh, the Afghan government and the Taliban. Um, and there are several reasons for why these complications are sort of have have sort of arisen. Um, I think one is that um, the the United States has signaled that it there it might renege on the May 1st deadline, mm. which means that it will extend the date uh, for extend the so it's sort of um, the duration for its 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 footprint to remain in, in Afghanistan. Um, the United States for it, its part argues that the Taliban haven't kept up their end of the bargain, that there hasn't been a reduction in violence, um, yeah. that, uh, you know, there continue to be terrorist attacks bomb blasts in Afghanistan that target, um, you know, uh, Afghan institutions, uh, Afghan civilians. Um, so the last three months of 2020 were, I, I think they saw a 45% increase in casualties mm. compared to the same period the previous year. Um, and uh, so that that's sort of where the United States is coming from. Uh, with the advent of uh, a Biden administration, uh, we've had senior U.S. officials, Anthony Blinken, uh, Lloyd Austin, sort of talking about um, how um, it might it's necessary to review the deal that was inked under the Trump administration. I think one of the good things that the the new Biden administration has done is they've retained Zalmi Khalil to continue on in that role mm-hmm. as special envoy, um, because I think um, what what is one of the few things that can help this situation move along is trust. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we can sort of like use that as an opening. Yeah, ground yeah, no, definitely. Um, it was interesting for me when I was reading the agreement um, because I just saw it as a complete capitulation on the part of the American government because what they've done is said, okay, we'll completely withdraw. We're going to take you guys off the sanctions list. We're going to have this prisoner exchange, no involvement from the Afghan government in the treaty, but you've agreed on their behalf to have this prisoner exchange. Um, And at the same time, all you've managed to get from the Taliban is promises of a ceasefire, promises that you kind of are very wary about their ability to keep. Um, And I wanted to, to talk a little bit as well about Pakistan's role in that because Pakistan was incredibly vindicated from the agreement, right? Because it was a win-win for them they've long been saying that we're going to have this uh that this is the only solution we're going to have a diplomatic solution um and it's really continued to emphasize that its key role has been in bringing the afghan taliban to the table um for a negotiated settlement and as the american withdrawal picks up pace do you think that the afghan government will be will continue to be viewed as a credible negotiating partner to this so I think there are a couple of things in in what you've asked. So so there's the one question has to do with um, how Pakistan was sort of scapegoated for mm. taking a certain policy and approach and insisting that there should be a political settlement and a military sort of s- solution to uh, the the end game in Afghanistan is just not tenable. Um, and then there's a secondary issue of of the solvency and the credibility of the uh, current Ghani administration. Mm. Um, but let me actually sort of picking up on in, in trying to answer both, let me also sort of like take us back to, you know, 2001, which is when the United States, uh, invaded Afghanistan. Um, so we know that after 9-11, the United States invaded Afghanistan on the, on the pretext of sort of taking out Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Um, and when they did so, they also bombed, um, you know, Taliban targets, um, they, uh, 
one of the admissions, in fact, that many American commentators now make is that the, the, the United States in 2001 should have drawn a starker distinction between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda um, for a number of reasons, um, you know, a withdrawal of international support. Um, the Taliban regime fell very quickly uh, in 2001. Um, and it was in November of 2001 that um, the Bonn conference was held in, in Germany, which brought um, factions to the table, uh, but not the Taliban. Yeah. So in some ways, it can't even be called a peace process because the participants of the Bonn conference weren't warring factions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and now there's evidence to suggest that at the time there were Taliban leaders who actually had been uh, sympathetic to compromising and who had wanted to be part of that post-war settlement. Um, I think that's where this issue of the the uh, the erosion of of the legitimate legitimacy of subsequent Afghan administrations began to take effect mm-hmm. because not in not just. It was not just an issue of uh, these uh, governments being mired by, you know, corruption, allegations of, you know, misspending um, the billions of dollars that uh, donors were sending into the country. Um, But also, I think a very real issue that we don't sort of pay enough attention to is the fact that these governments, if you look at the Karzai government or the Ashraf Ghani government, the, these have been seen as unrepresentative of yeah. the aspirations of the Afghan people. Mm. Um, and that sort of leads us to the where the current stalemate is between the Afghan government and um, pre- uh, pres- uh, led by President Ashraf Ghani on the one hand and the Afghan Taliban. Um, so the United States under Anthony Blinken has put forward this sort of Afghanistan peace agreement plan, um, which is calling for... Um, an interim government that is comprised of, um, you know, all sides, including the Taliban. And if you look at if you look at the text of that plan, there are sort of these key blank spaces in it, um, which can be filled filled in on uh, at a later date about you know, which uh, you know how is the pie sort of divided, mm-hmm. which which side gets what in terms of dividing ministries allocation of. Um, in particular, the security sector, who gets who's who's in charge of the security sector. Um, President Ashraf Ghani has rejected that sort of peace plan um, and has said that uh, instead offered that um, they they can be early elections um, in which everyone votes, um, but it, that is conditional on an Afghan cease, on a Taliban ceasefire first. Yeah. Um, on the on the on the part of the Afghan government, there seems to be this. Um, very palpable reluctance to relinquish power um, for understandable reasons um, because um, there are a number of power centers that are currently outside of the the, the Ghani administration which would gain considerably warlords who would gain Mm. considerably by, you know, from an interim sort of framework. So I think there's this, this real issue at the heart of where the current negotiation is stuck uh, between Kabul and uh, the Taliban in terms of whether to move towards an interim settlement or whether to move towards what Ghani is calling for and what a plan which I believe he's hoping to present in Istanbul in a few weeks' time, um, calling for early elections, which I think there's a lot of skepticism that should the should the, uh, plan B be followed, um, those early elections might not happen. Mm. Um, so to answer you, the 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 second part of your question about um, you know the extent to which the Afghan government can continue to be seen as a credible partner um, has a lot to do with I think the concessions that it's willing to make in terms of how it negotiates um, in the next couple of weeks. Um, so there are uh, senior officials in the Afghan government who have taken very badly to the tone of Anthony Blinken's letter, mm. in which they're, they've said that Afghanistan cannot be dictated to like this. Um, they've not appreciated the, the language that's been used. Right. Um, and I think for, I, you know, if you look at the United States now, the United States is keen to... Uh, it is keen to sort of retreat from Afghanistan. When the Obama administration pledged to surge troops, uh, we know that 
Joe Biden, who was his vice president, then was one of the uh, one of the one of his, the advisors that who was against the the idea of surging troops and was in fact more um, inclined towards a withdrawal of forces. Um, I think if you look at public opinion polls in the U.S., um, there is sort of there is growing indifference towards the Afghan war. Um, it was in 2003, it was, you know, in 2003, 2004, by the, at, at the time when um, the United States had began shifting focus towards Iraq, that um, Afghanistan began to be labeled um, America's forgotten war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is a real problem now, which is that even though it's become America's longest war, um, the sort of the desire to stay and see things through in a dignified manner um, has diminished significantly. Yeah. So there are many things which um, I th- I'm sure the U.S. would like to do, but it's uh, really a question of doing what is, of sort of deciding between what's doable versus what's desirable at this point. Um, and, you know, when, when, when you said that one of the things that the United States did was, you know, it capitulated in the form of that February 2020 agreement, I think it's symptomatic of just that mm. that fatigue and that desire to sort of exit quick quickly yeah um I, I think one of the most damaging things you know i mean we i'll the february 2020 agreement did some good things it got the taliban to agree to reduce violence but i think one of the damaging things mm. that that it did was it delegitimized the kabul government because Definitely. it excluded the the mm. the ashraf ghani administration from the process uh, and I think the Ghani administration has uh, had a hard time stomaching that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think it's interesting to note that Biden's policy kind of seems to be a little bit of a continuation of Obama's because he then started off by emphasizing this counterterrorism plus that, yeah, we will withdraw, but we'll like keep their little counterterrorism force, you know. So we're not going to have a large ground troop involvement, but we're going to have, you know, um, this little strategically deployed force and some air power. Uh, and I, I found Blinken's letter quite interesting as well because it focused on the regional countries that are involved. So it focused on, it mentioned India, it mentioned Pakistan. Um, and then I kind of want to talk about the Afghan government and the Taliban um, in my next question. But first, I wanted to ask you about um, the, the Washington narrative about Pakistan and whether that still continues. So we saw that in his recently published memoirs, Trump's national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, um, he said that Pakistan shouldn't do more, it should do less. And by doing less, he meant support the Haqqani network less, support the insurgency less. Um, so... Are we finally seeing a shift away from this narrative, even though some people could still criticize Pakistan for, you know, continuing to do stuff that it shouldn't do? Yeah. Um, Yes and no. Um, So, yes, in the sense that if you look at uh, the extent of America's involvement in in Afghanistan, two thirds of that, you know, uh, of those two decades were spent sort of uh, telling Pakistan to do more, do more. Mm you know, do more in sort of fighting the Taliban, do more in, you know, trying to facilitate an end game, which was essentially of America's own making. Um, I would sort of argue here, though, that, you know, the reason why the Taliban came to the table in February 2020 was not because the book was not because Pakistan did less. Mm. Um, it was because Pakistan actually pulled you know, played a considerable part in making that happen. If Pakistan had done less, um, I highly doubt that the February 2020 agreement would have happened. So that's where I would differ with uh, McMaster's thesis on this. Um, Going back to what I said about 2018, uh, the release uh, of Mullah Ghani Brother by Pakistan, um, you know, it took nine rounds of negotiations after that for the Taliban to finally come to the table in mm. Doha and sign an agreement with um, the United States. Uh, Pakistan's foreign minister, Shah Mahmood Qureshi, was at the signing of the Doha, Doha agreement. So I think there's there's a symbolic mm. angle to that. But yeah. I think in substantive terms, Pakistan did pull considerable weight and continues to do so. I mean, I we talked about how Zalmir Khalilzad has been stopping over in Islamabad every yeah. time he's come to the region. Um, it's also worth mentioning that 
the peace process uh doesn't the sort of begin into didn't begin in 2018 um so let's go back further a few years um as early as 2015 pakistan was hosting murray like peace processes trying to get the taliban to the the table in interestingly with americans present at the venue but sitting in the next room so okay. you can sort of you can sort of tell that mm-hmm. the americans are still dragging their feet still you know following this uh, fight talk fight modality right, right. um not fully convinced of the utility of talking to the taliban mm-hmm. um i think there were in fact two incidents that come to mind one was when pakistan hosted the taliban including the haqqanis at murray um, to try and get them to negotiate an end to the war um, it was around that time that the united states um, leaked news of mulauma's death mm-hmm. um, and that scuttled the peace process because for a number of reasons it led to um, you know it led to all kinds of speculation it, yeah. it, it signaled a lack of trust in the peace process on the behalf of on behalf of the, the united states um, there was a second incident th- in which uh, the United States is believed to have played a spoiler role in the peace process. So this is when the Quad framework was in place. So uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, China and the United States were all trying to get um, the Taliban to again see, you know, how can we sort of build a, a credible framework to go forward. Um, and the United States um, took out the leader of the Taliban, uh, Mullah Akhtar Mansoor, in a drone strike. Uh, again, bringing the peace process to a screeching halt. Mm. Um, so on both of those instances, Pakistan felt let down because Pakistan had been investing considerable resource into trying to facilitate an end to, um, you know, the conflict. But also I think there's this re- there, there has been this growing fatigue in Pakistan, particularly over the last decade in which Pakistan is just fed up of being viewed through this purely is fed up of being viewed by the United States through this purely um, Afghan uh, Afghan centric prism, right, right? right? So every conversation that Pakistan has with the, with the United States begins with and ends with Afghanistan. Right? Mm. What is Pakistan doing to facilitate an endgame? What should Pakistan, like you said, be doing more of or mm. doing less of? Um, I think in an in a in a in a in the interest of sort of getting out of that. Um, very toxic kind of, um, you know, place where Pakistan is constantly being criticized for everything that goes wrong in Afghanistan Mm. and then being told to, like, step up and do more. Um, Pakistan has tried very hard to bring the conflict in Afghanistan to a dignified close because Pakistan also wants to move beyond Afghanistan. Pakistan is tired of sort of being seen as being conjoined at the hip with Afghanistan. Um, One of the entire rationale behind building a a, a fence between the two countries along the 2400 kilometer border is precisely that, to try and sort of like, what happens in Afghanistan needs to stay in Afghanistan, what happens in Pakistan needs to stay in Pakistan. Mm. This is a big shift from Pakistan's previous policy of you know, trying to maintain strategic depth in in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, that's a policy which I think has uh, very few buyers in in Pakistan right now. Yeah. Um, so going forward, if Pakistan wants to focus on a on a foreign policy that's predicated in, um, you know, geoeconomics, regional connectivity, good ties with neighbors, be it east or west, um, the first thing that has to happen is there has there has to be peace in the region, um, and uh, that's really where Pakistan has been coming from during all of this. Um, so I think the danger now is is that as we sort of look at the current impasse between the Afghan government and the Taliban in Doha, um, there is this concern in Pakistan that once again, should the United States renege on the May 1st deadline um, and choose to stay in Afghanistan for longer than that, um, the Taliban are obviously not going to take kindly to this. Yeah. When that happens and things start going south, um, Pakistan's biggest concern is that it's going to end up getting scapegoated, mm. um, as has happened in the past. Um, I think that's a re- a, the real concern that Pakistan has right now, which is why Pakistan is very keen to see um, the peace process in Afghanistan go ahead. I think on its, uh, of, uh, you know, for its part, the United States. Um, and some observers 
um, who who look at Afghanistan, they believe they criticize Pakistan for having brought the Taliban to the table in February 2020, but then for not having done enough to actually get them to agree to reduce violence or to agree to a ceasefire. Um, and I think that's really the rub here because there are obvious limits to what Pakistan can do. Pakistan can't go into the negotiating room in Doha to argue on behalf or, 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 or uh, you know, act as a third party in those discussions. I think everybody has made it very clear that for these negotiations to be successful, they have to be Afghan-led and Afghan-owned. Um, and for that, the real, the real sort of legwork now has to be done by the parties that are in the room, which is the Afghan government, which needs to actually figure out, you know, what it's negotiating for, um, and the Taliban. Mm -hmm. You know, recently, um, a commentator in uh, uh, from in I think this was a Western commentator uh, observed that um, one of the problems that uh, exist at the moment is that both sides, so the Afghan Taliban and the Afghan government, have actually been hounded to the table. Um, neither side actually believes that they've exhausted military options. Mm. So both of them feel as if they've been coerced into sitting down and talking to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a real problem because that means that if you look at the, if you try and unpack the incentives of each actor, Neither of them really has to be at the negotiating table, mm. right? They always have the ability or they, they, they believe they have the ability to walk away without penalty. Um, and so that's, again, something which I think is a function of how the sequencing of these agreements has taken place. The February agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban, which cut Kabul out of the conversation. And now this expectation that Ashraf Ghani is going to fall into step with yeah. of, uh, the United States plans to exit um, and agree to some kind of power sharing deal with the Taliban. Mm. And I find that Pakistan has had to also take a very confused stance as well, because uh, you were talking about Baradar uh, and we had to add him back to the sanction list, actually, I think very recently in January, because um, we were so scared of being greylisted by FATF. And so at the same time, that person is, you know, the Taliban's chief negotiating partner and like, has legitimacy on that basis and then we're forced to sanction him on the basis of sanction lists which have not been updated following the peace agreement. Um, and I wanted to talk more about the fencing that you were talking about as well. So insurgent groups hostile to the state of Pakistan are regrouping again in the Northwest. Um, so how detrimental do you think that would be to Pakistan's security situation? And has anything really changed in the region after connecting kinetic operations in the tribal areas? And has fencing played any large role in this change? I like to call um, the, the fence between Afghanistan and Pakistan our version of Trump's wall. Um, and especially because it's, you know, it's such a porous and frequently tra traversed border. And you're talking about a border which goes back hundreds of years that um, has been used for centuries for people from a region which are so ethnically homogenous as well. Uh, so what do you think that that has, what are the implications of that? Uh, again, let me sort of take your question in two parts. So you began with, um, you know, uh, the blacklists and FATF yeah. and talking, uh, which in some ways is connected to the previous, mm. previous question. But just to round off that conversation, um, you know, the United States has been pushing or has been pushing for uh, a strategy of uh, maximum maximum pressure on Pakistan. So right, driving up the pressure whenever it believes it can sort of coerce Pakistan into behaving a certain way. Um, you know, either bringing the Taliban to the table or sort of um, doing other things that the United States believes is helpful to uh, an end game that suits Washington. Um, I think that strategy began to change under the Trump administration. Um, so for all its faults, uh, one of the, I think, uh, one of the better things to come out of the Trump administration was the fact that in 2019, I believe this was early 2019, Senator Lindsey Graham visited Pakistan, um, actually had very detailed meetings in both Islamabad and Rawalpindi and saw the extent to which Pakistan had not only rehabilitated its side of the border, mm -hmm. um, but had also decisively, you know, cracked down on terrorism. Um, and also he became aware of the efforts that Pakistan had made up to this point to try and sort of bring about 
um, some kind of lasting viable solution to the Afghan conflict. So he went back. He, you know, he paved the way for the the meeting that eventually happened between President Trump and Prime Minister Imran Khan in Washington, uh, where the two leaders hit it off. And there were a couple of other meetings. One of them was on the sidelines of of Davos after afterwards. Um, and I think that that sort of repair in the relationship was necessary mm-hmm. because what what happened because as a result of that repair was that both sides for the first time in a long time had the same common objective which was that there needs to be a political settlement to end this war up to yeah. this point they had both agreed that the war needs to end but mm-hmm. they had been on different pages about how the war should be yeah, brought to yeah. a conclusion um so i think one of the fact one of the thing i mean the fact that pakistan has remained on the gray list um didn't actually get blacklisted or the fact that pakistan during the same period um was able to receive um uh, an imf package you know were are also should be seen as fruits of that labor mm. uh, an improvement in the in the relationship between pakistan and the united states as well as an agreement um uh, to not criticize each other as publicly as had been the case in the past. So if you look at the early um years of the Trump presidency you'll remember these nasty tweets that would come out accusing mm. Pakistan of lies and deceit. Yeah. Um and towards the end of the Trump uh, presidency a very there was a very different a very measured tone um that was used to by officials on both sides. Um and I think for the first time there there for, for the first time today there's real optimism in terms of salvaging this relationship beyond the rubble of you know some half finished conversation mm. on Afghanistan um so that's that's in response to the first part of your question um now coming to the fence um we've already talked about how um you know this 2400 km border has been um both a blessing and a curse between Afghanistan and Pakistan so after 911 uh when the taliban slipped back into the woodwork they slipped into these caves and underground mm-hmm. networks uh the west held that the taliban had retreated into pakistan and were using pakistan as a base to regroup and launch attacks uh in afghanistan um we also know that uh in 2007 um a number of militant factions um that were um you know inimical to the state of pakistan converged un- under the umbrella of the tehreek-e-taliban pakistan um and under the leadership of betullah masood they began carrying out large scale suicide attacks in across pakistani cities um you know the 2014 um attack on the army public school in peshawar uh in the 2016 easter sunday bombing in lahore i mean these are just some of the mm. you know, you know in a, in a long list chronology in a long chronology of um bloody events yeah um these are just some incidents that you and i both remember because we grew up uh during this period um mm. when islamabad was branded as unsafe when pakistan was branded as um uh, you know not safe for tourists um and pakistan's image really deteriorated during that time as well um it's for those those reasons that uh, and and more that pakistan uh began a number of kinetic operations um beginning with with zarbeazab in 2014 um followed by radul fasad to try and clear up these this the dismantled terrorist infrastructure on its side of the border get rid of these groups because it had become clear that these groups were targeting pakistan in a way that was not in pakistan's national interest was doing a lot of harm to pakistan's security as well as pakistan's image abroad um The problem now is that despite a lot of success so Zarbeazab was a success Radul Fasad was a success um the of uh, erstwhile Fata districts which have now become part of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa proper um are being rehabilitated by the Pakistan military uh in tandem with civilian agencies um the problem is though that by virtue of that border being porous um a lot of these ttp groups that pakistan chased out ended up regroup ended up finding refuge in eastern afghanistan in the bordering provinces of nangahar paktika um and kunar and and launching attacks from there into into pakistan um so this has been one of the 
you know, when when Pakistan has a conversation with the United States about what needs to be done in the region, what needs to be done in Afghanistan, uh, one of Pakistan's points is is like, look, you need to understand what our security concerns are too. There are these groups in eastern Afghanistan that are posing a threat to Pakistan's security that continue to launch attacks. Um, and Pakistan has, Pakistan says it has evidence of uh, foreign agencies um, sponsoring, nurturing these groups, um, which are then uh, still being able to launch kinetic attacks in, into Pakistan cities. Um in August 2020, um, I think worryingly, under the leadership of uh, Noor Wali Masood, who's the new TTP commander, um, a number of disparate factions of the TTP once again coalesced under that same banner. So one of the things that Noor Wali Masood has been able to do is he's been able to bring together, for instance, the, the Jamaatul Erar and the Hezbollah Erar. They're, those are two like factions of the TTP that had split following the death of Hakimullah Masood in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the Jamaatul Erar in particular is you known for the Easter Sunday bombing that happened in um, uh, a few years ago. Um, its leader, Umar Khalid Khorasani, was recently taken out in, in Afghanistan. Um, but the fact that this continue, they continue to maintain an operational presence means that while their um, capabilities may have been degraded by numerous military operations conducted by the Pakistan army, there remains the potential for uh, greater capability if they continue to have a free hand and continue to get sponsorship um, and continue to sort of operate uninhibited um, in eastern Afghanistan. So that's really Pakistan's concern. That's Mm. sort of where, again, we're talking about the rationale for that for like you said, Trump's wall, the 2,400 kilometer border. Yeah. I would I would actually say that, so I would differ a little bit on the reading. So I wouldn't really call it Trump's wall. Um, the new 2,400 kilometer border actually has 16 uh, mandated checkpoints across the border where, uh, you know, people and families who have to cross the border can, can move. Um, Pakistan and Afghanistan are also at the moment working on build, establishing trading markets that can, yeah. can exist on either side of the border, uh, as well as um, discussing long-term passes for families who have both farming land as well as family members on the other side of the border to move more freely. Um, but if you, if in terms of thinking about the damage that the porous border has done in the unchecked flow of, you know, narcotics, goods, uh, narcotics in particular. So we really haven't talked about this, but you know, opium uh, poppy cultivation. Ninety percent of what is grown in Afghanistan is actually then smuggled out through mm. Pakistan. Um, so there's not there's contraband. There's the the illegal trafficking or the flow of people. And for Pakistan, again, coming back to the TTP, this real concern that groups that are uh, inimical to Pakistan's interests are using eastern Afghanistan to launch attacks into Pakistan. Pakistan wants to prevent that from happening. Mm. I think um, I, I think the reason I'm, I'm kind of on the other side of this is because um, I'm thinking about it mainly in the context of refugees. Mm. And I was at the Islamabad National Security Dialogue recently, and they talked about anything and everything under the sun that would be a national security issue. And they talked a lot about Afghanistan. There's a lot of talk about the pandemic. There was a lot of talk about climate change. When we're talking about PAC-Afghan relations, we're not talking about refugees. And I think that's... Um, I would like to believe that the checkpoints uh, across the Pakistan-Afghan border would be um, mainly for that. But we also saw that after the APS attack, there was an increased um, campaign of harassment and intimidation towards refugees. And they were kind of scapegoated at the time for being responsible for these attacks. Uh, And I wanted wanted to talk about that because I I think it's super important to talk about that in the context of national security and PAC-Afghan relations. So... um, We've always had a Pakistani state policy of repatriation of refugees. Um, Pakistan has said that this is cannot be a protracted and never-ending refugee crisis. There is no option of resettlement, right? We have to keep on sending them back. Yeah. And so every time there is an attack, every time we see uh, the issue of refugees being brought to the fore, it's always send them back, send them back, send them back. Shamud Qureshi, the foreign minister, he released a statement on the day of the... Um, Afghan peace deal being signed, saying this is a great time for them to be sent back. Um, and so I kind of want to talk about whether a holistic solution would be any likelier um, 
given everything that we've talked about. And I also wanted to just bring up here Iman Khan's statement in 2018 that we should give um, multi-generational refugees, as in the children who are born and raised of, in Pakistan of Afghan refugee citizenship. Um, there was a very hostile reaction to that statement. And so no no further moves have been made on, on that front. Um, but how likely is it that the Pakistani state is going to continue with this policy of repatriation? I don't really see any change coming there. But um, also, what is a holistic solution in that? And how should we be talking about refugees in this context? It's it's a, a difficult question. Um, mm. And I think you have done a good job of just identifying all the difficulties associated with uh, the repatriation of refugees. Um I think one word that Pakistan has been using more frequently is that Pakistan wants a dignified repatriation of, of refugees. Um, there are so there are a number of sort of issues at stake. I think on the one hand, let's talk about those who are opposing the idea of naturalization or giving mm-hmm. Afghan refugees citizenship. Uh, this is a contentious and a political issue in the context of Pakistan. So let's look at how many Afghan refugees there are. Um, there are probably... I, I I mean, you might have a better idea. I think there are 1.5 million um, registered Afghan refugees and they're considered to be far more Afghan refugees who are un- actually unregistered mm. in Pakistan at the moment, right? That's not counting their children and their mm. their grandchildren. Um, so for Pakistan, the I think the one, one concern would be that should these citizens be naturalized, that then can have an impact in... The demographic impact in certain cities such as Quetta and Karachi, where the ethnic balance is sort of uh, there. If you have a certain politics that's predicated on the ethnic makeup of of these areas. And we also know that Karachi and Quetta are Karachi is, in fact, the biggest sort of uh, home to uh, Pashtun refugees outside of of, of Afghanistan. Uh, So there's that aspect to consider. I think it's also worth looking at some of the statements that have been made by the Ghani administration on refugees. So the Ghani administration is very keen to have these citizens return to Afghanistan yeah. as well. Um, because in Pakistan, the citizen, uh, many Afghan refugees who have come, they've been able to set up businesses, they've mm. been able to contribute to the Pakistani economy. They've also been sending sort of money back home when they've been able to. Um, and... If these are skilled workers, for instance, there's a desire in Afghanistan that they be repatriated so that they can contribute to the Afghan workforce. Um, So I think the desire for a dignified repatriation is a two-way street. Both sides actually want this to happen. The problem is is that, um, again, this is very much conditional on some sort of um, conclusion to the conflict in Afghanistan. As long as Afghanistan remains on the boil and there's this low simmer conflict um, that becomes okay occasionally becomes high simmer during mm-hmm. fighting seasons um, the the question of their return becomes a lot more complicated uh, because these families then don't really have a safe place to go back to where they can actually build lives and a livelihood for themselves yeah um, again one of so one of the things that um, Pakistan has tried to do in recent years is also insulate its conversation with Afghanistan the bilateral conversation about what the Pak-Afghan bilateral relationship looks like from the larger question of the Afghan war, the Afghan conflict, mm-hmm. what the U.S. is trying to do in Afghanistan. Um, I think there was this, there, there has been this very welcome realization that uh, for, for you know, things to move forward in the region, it's important that Pakistan and Afghanistan have a good working relationship. So in recent years, we've had a number of working groups come up, including on the issue of refugees, to talk exactly about this, to see mm. what can be done to facilitate and also to do this in a phased manner. Because Pakistan doesn't want to be in a position where all refugees are, you know, it has to send all refugees back. That would be very undignified. Um, so I think working in tandem with Afghan authorities, but also with an eye to what the situation in Afghanistan on the ground is, Pakistan is going to try and look for a way to you know, do exactly the, do exactly that. Try and repatriate Afghan refugees mm. in a dignified manner, um, and 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 take whatever steps that need to be taken in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wish I shared your optimism for a dignified repatriation. Um, I do think that a much ado is made of the fact that we're talking about one point five registered refugees, potentially zero point nine million unregistered refugees. Um, so. 
you know, max 2.5 million in a country of 200 million. That's 1% that we could give citizenship to. And also, um, you know, you were talking about the remittances. So Afghanistan knows that it gets a lot of remittances from uh, Afghans who are in Pakistan. And Pakistan also knows that it relies on Afghans for cheap and productive labor. Um, and, and so maybe maybe not enough is made of that. I kind of then wanted to, um, my last question is kind of looking at what happens next in terms of, uh, you've talked a lot about the overall history of the conflict as well, mm-hmm. like taking it back to before the peace agreement. So after, uh, we saw that after the Soviets cut off aid, uh, to Kabul, the Najibullah government fell, and we saw endless civil war. And analysts today point to something of a stalemate of the same kind, which is to say that the Afghan government cannot uh, defeat the Taliban, and the Taliban cannot keep Kabul, cannot take Kabul. So what happens then? Are we going to see the same thing? I know that this is a very um, difficult question to answer, but I kind, I kind of just wanted your view on are we going to see another forever war? Yeah. I, I think um, one of the things that is concerning of concern to all parties right now is that we may be headed towards an indefinite stalemate mm. uh, which doesn't really favor any side ultimately um so i think it was in early 2021 that a report was released uh, indicating that um an estimated uh, the the Afghan government actually only controls thirty three percent of all districts in yeah. Afghanistan right now. Mm. Um, in comparison, the Taliban are controlling nineteen percent of mm. the total districts. Um, the remaining districts, which is almost half of Afghanistan, are either fully or partially contested between both the Afghan Taliban and the Afghan government. Um, so in, in the comparative politics literature, what we call this is, you know, we, we use this term monopoly of violence. Um, and the Afghan government does not have a monopoly over violence and hasn't really had one um, since, since, you know, 2004. Um, the problem here is, is that um, the Taliban doesn't need to have a monopoly over violence to be able to show that it's doing well. It just has to be able to indicate that the Afghan government, which claims to be the state, mm. doesn't hold that right, monopoly. Right. Um, and so this stalemate is very worrying. It's also worrying because we know that the Taliban have um, you know, a financial steady stream of uh, revenue coming in. Um, I think by some estimates... It's $1.5 billion a year that they're making through um, oh, wow. uh, poppy cultivation. Mm. But also by taxing um, contractors, um, taxing highways, uh, and, and taxing you know mineral deposits that fall under their purview. Um, so they can keep this going. You know, earlier on, we were having this conversation. One of the things that I mentioned was that both sides right now have been hounded to the negotiating table. So neither of them really has an incentive to mm. be there. That That's a problem. I think what will have to happen for negotiations to be able to move forward is that there'll have to be, um, you know, some sort of strategic rethink in both ends where it actually becomes in their interest to be at the negotiating table for them to see that, yes, we will we will walk away from this negotiating table better off um, if we sign an agreement mm. than if we were to leave the the, the, t- the table without having signed an agreement. Yeah. Um, and that's really where I think the U.S. also can play a better role in terms of how it sort of um, applies pressure on the Ghani administration to be more flexible and to compromise. Um, I think other regional countries also have a role. So one of the things we talked about in Blinken's letter um, was the focus that has been placed on regional countries. Um, so not just Pakistan, Russia, China, mm. Iran, which we know do have contacts with the Taliban, which have leverage with the Taliban, can also play a role to try and bear pressure on the Taliban to say that, look, if you were to sign an agreement today, you know, there you will be, not only will you, will you be part of the political mainstream, but you'll get something that you didn't necessarily have before when you were last in power, which is you will have international legitimacy and yeah. um, recognition. Provided, of course, that you there are, of course, certain red lines, women's rights, you know, you uh, letting girls go to school, letting women um, have all the opportunities that they've been afforded as a result of the 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 the, the, the 
the post-2001 situation, um, if the Taliban agree to that and can also see that it's in their interest to lay down their arms, because right now I think that's where that's that's the real sticking point. They believe that they can continue fighting, as mm-hmm. does the Afghan government, which believes that it can continue fighting and wants to. Yeah. Um, a recent intelligence report um, is actually quite paints quite a pessimistic picture because it suggests that should um, you know should the United States withdraw from Afghanistan without a deal having been reached, um, you know there are places in Afghanistan, southern Afghanistan. Kandahar, Helmand, where uh, the a Taliban takeover is likely to be very swift. Mm. Um, Afghans, uh, Afghanistan's police presence in those areas is patchy at best. Um, and when operations did take place in 2020, um, the only way Afghanistan was able to retain control or partial control of certain districts was by relying on elite commandos um, and relying on the on the army. Uh, okay. And there's this big question about whether that's sustainable. Mm. So this, again, coming back to the idea of the security framework, the security mm. apparatus that's in place in Afghanistan, can that sort of survive a U.S. withdrawal should the, the Americans withdraw? Yeah, yeah. And I, I find it very interesting to have these conversations with people who aren't international lawyers because then you find out the IR term. So the IR term for this is monopoly of violence. The international law term for this is effective control. And so the more we look at the Afghan conflict and the more we look at the Taliban regaining territory or taking over territory or even not regaining the territory, but um, seeing how the Afghan government does not have uh, any kind of legitimacy or an ability to keep a stronghold in those areas, um, the more worrying it is really when you see um, the prospect for an endless civil war in Afghanistan. Um, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today. This no, is such an interesting conversation. Uh, thank you for having um, me. Thank you to everyone who's tuned in at home. We hope that you'll tune in for future podcasts. Um, thank you for joining us.